Hello and welcome to the Youth Fusion Expert Series, a podcast where we engage with leaders and experts in the various related fields of nuclear disarmament, peace and security, and sustainable development. Through these conversations, we wish to offer you all the chance to learn and be inspired by those who are actively working towards a fairer and more peaceful future for all. And again, welcome to another exciting episode of the Youth Fusion Expert Series, which is really long overdue by now. I'm your host, Michaela Higgins-Ranson, a core member of Youth Fusion, and I am absolutely thrilled to be here with you today. We have an incredible guest joining us today, someone whose achievements and expertise will undoubtedly pique your interest, especially all of our feminist and gender studies listeners out there. So let me introduce you to the brilliant Yannis Kappelman. Yannis is currently a PhD student and researcher at the esteemed University of Hamburg in Germany. He was also a young fellow at the German Council on Foreign Relations and he holds a Master's in International Conflict Studies. His main areas of focus encompass nuclear disarmament and international peace and security. And what's truly remarkable is that despite being in the early stages of his career and as a youth, Yannis has already gained invaluable experience within the field, including with the United Nations and other international arenas. Recently, Yannis wrote an exceptional paper on feminist foreign policy with a specific emphasis on nuclear weapons. When Youth Fusion came across his work, we were immediately interested and knew we had to delve deeper into his research. Over the past couple of years, we've had the pleasure of crossing paths with Yannis at various conferences, such as the MSP1 in Vienna last year, and today we finally have the opportunity to hear about his incredibly intriguing findings thus far, as well as his truly valuable insights and all the wonderful connections that he makes in his field. So, without further ado, let's welcome Yannis Kappelman to the show and explore the fascinating world of his research. So, let's dig into the conversation. Well, hello Yannis and welcome and thank you very much for being here today on the Youth Fusion Expert Series podcast. We're really delighted to have you. Um, And as the little introduction uh, in the beginning introduced you, you're very, very impressive uh, person and we have a lot of questions for you especially um, pertaining to feminist foreign policy and nuclear disarmament because that's really what you're getting your hands dirty with these days Um, and I just find it very fascinating I've also done a lot of work on feminist foreign policy throughout my studies and I think it's a really great uh, framework that uh, has a lot of potential obviously a lot of uh, sort of kinks need to be ironed out there but uh, I do think that uh, it's really uh, on, a, on a good path. So um, before I babble on too much, I have one question to start us off with to sort of find out a little bit more about yourself. So if we could hear a little bit about yourself, your background, who are you, where are you from, and what really got you interested in nuclear disarmament and also, I guess, feminist foreign policy? Yeah, first of all, um, thank you so much for having me. And um, it's a pleasure to to be in the podcast. I, I really um, you know, enjoy all your work and, and all the things you do. Um, so thanks for having me. Um, and you asked about myself. 
Um, so I'll start with that. I'm born and raised in northern Germany. Um, for those that are experts on the region, it's called uh, Bremen. Um, some might might know that. Um, I studied sociology, politics and economics um, down in southern Germany for bachelor's and uh, then went on to study international conflict studies um, in, in London. Um, and really between that or, or in my, in my um, bachelor's studies even, I got interested in nuclear disarmament um, first, and it's it's actually quite an interesting story, I think, because whenever you speak with disarmament people or nuclear people, um, they always say, well, I got into this field by accident, kind of, right? And um, I think that's the same for me. I also got into this field by accident because um, I was just applying for an internship back in the day. And um, yeah, I found this internship at the permanent mission of, of Liechtenstein um, at the United Nations. And, and Liechtenstein, very small country um, in, in Europe, uh, sandwiched between um, Switzerland and Austria, um, has a mission at the United Nations, as, as um, all UN countries, I think, do. And this mission um, as, as a country um, is, is relatively small. Um, I think per capita, if you if you break it down, would be really large for, for a country, but um, in, in um, absolute numbers, it's really small. And um, this was great. So we can, um, you know, we were interns and, and we are interns. We're able to do a lot of stuff um, that probably in, in large countries you wouldn't, been, wouldn't have been able to do. I did that in the second half of of 2018, and um, when I when I got there, uh, my my supervisor or my boss boss said, um, "Are you going into the first committee now? Um, you're you're monitoring our first committee sessions. First committee of the um, UN General Assembly um, is is the um, Committee on International Security and Disarmament, or I think I think it's called Disarmament and International Security, um, to get the priorities of the UN in order." Um, and yeah, this committee was, was really interesting. Um, there was a time when when the um, nuclear ban treaty, the, the treaty on the prohibition of, of nuclear weapons, um, I might say TPNW in this podcast, because we nuclear people tend to um, use abbreviations a lot. Um, but it was a time when this when this treaty um, just came about, um, was just adopted um, for the first time. And um, that was, you know, an exciting time for, for disarmament, because, um, uh, yeah, um, they they threw me right in the midst of it. Um, and um, during the, my time at the UN, um, I also had a meeting um, with uh, Ray Atchison, um, and they were extremely impressive. Uh, and I think that that got me hooked as well on on the feminist perspectives. I needed some time um, after this meeting uh, to get into nuclear disarmament and to get into the nuclear realm first, and then um, kind of circle back to to the feminist and gender perspectives. Uh, but yeah, here we are, and I think I think I I did right now or by by now at least. Thank you so much. And I can really resonate with that whole, um, you know, uh, pattern where people just really get into this field completely by accident. I also had a very similar experience when I started interning in 2020 with the PNND. Uh, and I was just looking because my background, I kind of have it the opposite way where I sort of started off with the gender and feminist perspectives. And then I got into nuclear disarmament and I was really just desperately looking for anything to do with gender. And that's how I, uh, ended up in the PNND's gender peace and security program uh, for my internship 
And then I feel this field, it's so small and weird, but I mean, people really like, once you sink your teeth in, like it's difficult to, to get out of it. People really rope you in from like the advocacy space to academia and like everything in between NGO space. So I think that's a really, um, really interesting path. And I really love to hear about um, everyone's different journey into the field. And it's also cool. I mean, you, you've also just said you've, uh, you've worked with, uh, with Ray Atchison before and, and they're just so amazing. I mean, you know, I've, I've seen them speak um, at the, at the MSP one and it was just like, I was in awe of, of all their work uh, and how eloquent and, and just to the point they are. So it just shows you how, you know, this field really, um, it, it takes you on a roller coaster ride, so to speak. Um, and there's definitely something to be said about getting to sort of smaller uh, organizations where you're you're not just an intern getting coffee. You really have a lot of agency. So that's really, um, really, really nice to hear and a very interesting path, might I add. So thank you very much. And uh, now we hear you're doing a PhD at the University of Hamburg, and uh, it is titled Feminist Foreign Policy, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Regime and the Interrelations, a Case of Conflicting Norm Clusters. So this has been subject to change as a lot of PhD uh, uh, projects are, um, but please break this down for us. We would really love to hear um, what you're really working on and what you're gaining your expertise in. Yeah, thank you. So um, as as evidence is that I'm in this podcast, I kind of stayed after Liechtenstein, right, stayed in the field and subsequently decided to to go for the PhD route. Um, I think we might be able to talk about um, the, the PhD route and, and how academia uh, in, in, in this arm works. But first, you know, um, might be interesting for some of you, might not be interesting for others to, to hear what a PhD um, thesis is and what my PhD um, thesis or where it comes from and what I'm trying to do. So, um, and please do cut me off when I'm too long because PhD students have this um, tendency to talk about the research way too long and and um, way more intensely um, than anyone is interested in, but um, I'm, I'm trying not to. So, um, the the puzzle, the, the um, idea that I first had um, was, was really feminists in IR and feminists in academia um, generally care a lot about nuclear weapons. We've discussed that a bit, right? That that that's a huge topic when you when you um, enter feminist spaces, and um, it's it's you know um, always been there in feminist activism, um, feminist IR um, as kind of a a reaction to to realist IR um, has always had this this idea of nuclear disarmament, nuclear deterrence um, at at the center of discussions. So it's always been there. But when you look at feminist from policies, very often um, you don't really see nuclear weapons, or at least not so prominently. And it's interesting, right? Um, that feminists in activist spaces and policy and 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 um, academic spaces talk a lot about nuclear weapons, and um, feminists from policies don't. And that's my puzzle. Why? Why is that, right? Um, and my my idea was to start with norms and and start with the concept of of norms to um, get a hold of it theoretically and and theories of course are, are there to um, you know basically make sense of of what's happening um, in a structured way 
Um, so that's why I'm trying to talk about norms a bit because I'm working with a concept. I think it's it's useful to do because um, in in um, the nuclear non-proliferation realm, the regime um, and the feminist foreign policies, um, there's a lot of norms in there floating around. Um, so probably I'll start with breaking down what norms are and breaking down um, how they uh, behave in in um, non-proliferation and nuclear stuff and how they behave in feminist foreign policy. So the idea really is that norms uh, are rules, uh, written or unwritten, um, practiced, um, uh, that shape or influence the behavior of actors in the international realm. So it's, you know, it's more than just the laws. It's it's more than just um, legal norms. Uh, we're talking about, about international relations norms here, coming from the constructivist, critical constructivist um, school of, of international relations. And then not only constituting the behavior of, of um, any actors in the international, um, but they're also constituted by the, the um, actions of actors in the international. So they are both constituting and constitutive. Um, constituting and uh, constituted this way. Um, the, the idea then is what do norms have to do with nuclear weapons? Um, and nuclear weapons governance. Well, if you look into nuclear weapons and and um, take a deep dive, then you can see that there are certain norms that that are there and kind of hang together. There's non-proliferation, so the idea that um, when you're a non-nuclear weapon state, you shouldn't acquire um, nuclear weapons. So only the the nuclear weapon states defined under the NPT, under the non-proliferation treaty, um, the the P5 states, the, the states that also coincidentally doesn't have anything to do with it directly, but um, the the um, states that are um, also the the permanent members of Security Council. Um, so these states, um, US, China, France, UK, um, the difficulty Russia, of course, um, are the states that are defined as nuclear weapon states. All the other states in the non-proliferation treaty um, are not allowed to acquire nuclear weapons. And the nuclear weapon states are also not allowed to help them uh, get nuclear weapons. So that's the first norm, non-proliferation. Second norm would be um, peaceful use, probably. Um, so the the right to use nuclear technology um, peacefully, and you might you know think about nuclear technology um, what you what you want, what you will, but um, it it's a right under the NPT to to be able to use that, and you can decide for using nuclear technology peacefully. You can decide against it, but the the right is there. And there's also an obligation for, or you know, a norm um, for the nuclear weapon states to help the nuclear weapon, non-nuclear weapon states to to support them um, in using uh, technology, nuclear technology, peacefully. And then there's also disarmament. So um, a norm defined uh, also under the NPT that all states must work towards disarming their nuclear arsenal and eventually getting rid of it. Um, that's that's interesting, actually, because um, you can see, also see development of, of norms there. Um, because at first, in the in the NPT um, in the in the sixties, was just defined as working toward disarmament, um, and then the um, International Court of Justice ruled in nineteen ninety six. Well, it actually has come to conclusion as well, and there's still a lot of debate um, among states on how to interpret that and what actually disarmament is. But you know you can see these are different norms that build um, the non-proliferation um, regime, and there's a new idea, a new theoretical um, idea that um, 
uh, talks about norm clusters. Um, Jeffrey Lentis and Carmen Wunderlich are, um, are the main people uh, who come up with this, with this idea. Um, and the idea is that norm clusters are a collection of aligned but distinct norms um, or principles at the center of a regime, for instance, a non-proliferation regime, right? So we've seen the different norms, they are institutionalized, um, and there's also cohesion between the norms. So the norms just don't stand there uh, um, on themselves. Um, it's not just the sum and norm uh, on itself. But what the Zaman norm does has also influence um, on the other two um, norms that are defined um, in the non-proliferation regime. So if one state doesn't work toward disarmament, it might also impact um, the legitimacy of the other norms. So that's interesting, right? That that's a norm cluster kind of hangs together um, and norms are not just singular entities, but have something to do with each other. Um, and then was and then my idea was um, what's what's the feminist foreign policy even right how can I theorize that um, and the idea would um, would be to um, also think of feminist foreign policy as trying to do something similar as trying to be an emerging norm cluster um, and the idea of the feminist foreign policy as a concept um, having this added value of creating cohesion between norms. Um, probably we have to kind of think about what's FFP. Um, here it's not coherent, it's not the same in each country. Um, we, we had Sweden beginning with, an, with a feminist front policy in 2014, then other countries like Canada, Mexico, France, Spain, Luxembourg, Libya, Germany, Chile, um, the Netherlands. Um, and, you know, all of these countries are, are having very different approaches to, to feminist front policy. Some have really elaborate, um, you know, even even book-like guidelines um, that line up the feminist foreign policy. Um, others basically said we're having a feminist foreign policy at one meeting. Um, never talked about it again. Um, so we we having really different approaches to to it, and also in terms of what they do, different approaches. So some uh, mention gender equality, and some mention you know, uh, men and women are equal. Um, others go into intersectional intersectionalities, um, and um, Sweden, um, so 2014, um, introduced the the three R's: so rights, representation, resources for for women, and um, Women and girls were in the center of, of these three R's. Um, if you look at the German form, feminist foreign policy, you can see that um, they go slightly further and say, well, you know, the three R's are not just about um, women and girls, but also about uh, marginalized groups. So that's interesting, right? It's, it's developing. So the idea is, you know, what, what norms are in the center? That's a question I, I also have to answer. And, and currently thinking of, of norms such as gender equality, women's rights, economic empowerment, human security, because these norms always pop up in, in these um, feminist foreign policy spaces frequently. And I'm still in the in the process of developing that, right? I'm still in the process of, of finding um, commonalities between this feminist from policies um and you know when we when we talk in in two or three years um i hopefully have have bet a better answer for you and and can make out the the concrete norms um that the make a feminist from policy that that's what i'm trying to do right now so i'm reading to i'm trying to read ffp as as an emerging norm cluster um i'm using the literature then on on um, norm relations on how norms relate and how norms sometimes overlap um to explore how 
um, the two norm clusters that we have, right? The nuclear non-proliferation norm cluster we talked about and the feminist from policy emerging norm cluster, how these relate or might also not relate, right? When states not talk about um, nuclear weapons in the FFPs and probably vice versa um, in the nuclear weapon policies, not talk about feminist perspectives, um, where does that come from, right? Why, why don't they? Uh, relate. Um, and I think Norm's research with, with a lot of history on um, research on, on when and why norms relate um, can probably help us there. I don't have an answer yet. Um, that's, that's what the PhD journey is like, but I hope to have one in a few years. Well, I wish you a lot of luck on that journey because I think that this work is so important because you're not only you know, trying to add, um, you know, a substantial theory to feminist foreign policy, which it doesn't really have this theoretical framework. Because I remember when I was doing my projects on FFP, um, it was very hard to find a theoretical sort of framework to 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 use to like to frame it. Right. Uh, the closest thing I came was the sort of ethics of care uh, approach uh, where you have this distant care for others. But it was very like, you know, for lack of better words, fluffy and not really a theory, so to speak. It was more just like a, like an idea, um, like an ethics sort of thing. And we're in IR and we really need, you know, solid theories and frameworks. Um, so I think that this work is really important to help uh, make some frameworks and also build, you know, better connections, uh, you know, between the nuclear disarmament space and feminist foreign policy and build those sort of you know, connections and see where they overlap and, and, you know, what's why certain things are in some places and others not. Um, and I just think there's there's so much going on. It's a really a nuanced uh, piece of work you're doing, it sounds like. So I'm really excited to see where it goes and hopefully uh, to read it in its full form one day. And hopefully you can have a solid framework for FFP in a theoretical sense. So that's really, really great work. Um, and I like it's always amazing to hear about uh, what PhD students are doing. Um, so thank you very much for that. Uh, and now the third question here is kind of, you know, building on to, to this question, right? Because I know it, a lot of the elements of this question are already in your, um, your PhD. Uh, so could you please tell us why intersectional perspectives are so important in the nuclear disarmament field, uh, especially when it comes to gender and post-colonial perspectives? Um, and you've already sort of, you know, pulled on this thread a bit, but like what added value do they bring? Yeah, thanks. Very interesting question. And I think very important uh, um, question. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's really about um, how we approach international relations and studying IR without studying colonialism and without studying gender um, isn't possible. The problem is that it has been done for a long time, right? Um, and either you attend to those uh, ideas and, and perspectives um, or, or theories, you know, I think it's more than um, than perspectives or approaches. I think it's it's um, it's also a very solid framework of uh, or groundwork of, of theories that we can um that we can rely on and, and studies that have been done in the past um, that we can work with. Um, so either you tend to them uh, and work with them um, and and reflect them and reflect how gender, how colonialism has played a role um, 
or you you know reproduce them basically um, if you don't reflect them critically um, the, the danger is um, that these colonial structures are retained and then the um, gendered um, gen gendered construction of international relations um, is is retained um, so I'm trying really um, you know I'm always perfect of course um, and and no one in the research really is um, to to attend to to these perspectives and uh, to these theories. Um, and what's important is that um, and pro probably I start with a quote from Shampa Biswas. Nuclear Desire was was a book that I really liked. Uh, if you haven't read it, uh, please uh, do so. If if this podcast isn't enough for you. Um, Shambhabiswa says that the subaltern, um, having this, this idea of the subaltern um, from, from um, Antonio Gramsci and, and Spivak, um, the, the subaltern are already, already speaking in all sorts of forms and expressions all around the world. In the first, what remains of the second and the third and most important, the fourth worlds. But the vehicle of the state um, does, not, does, does not let us hear them. And the frame of security does not, as, does not let us attend to them. Um, so it's really also about about agency, um, right? And and that we have a lot of um, activism uh, going on, and that we have a lot of um, academic work going on um, that is really um, disadvantaged. But in terms of nuclear weapons and in terms of of um, nuclear questions, I think we can um, also go through a few points. I'll probably start with with um, post colonial. Um, theories and issues that are important in, in my book and then attend to gender. So when it comes to nuclear and, and post-colonial, I think we are colonial and, and decolonial. I, I think we can start with nuclear testing and, and also talk about nuclear mining. And then um, I also want to talk about the, the deal that's behind the non-proliferation treaty pretty quickly. So when it comes to nuclear testing, um, we can see that um, all the states that have tested nuclear weapons, basically, um, or at least all the uh, P5 uh, states, um, all the nuclear weapon states under the Non-Proliferation Treaty, um, all these states have tested their nuclear weapons um, in, in somewhat odd places, in some, uh, some places um, where especially disadvantaged, especially marginalized um, communities were housed. So um, let's probably go through the countries really quick um, to see what I mean. The US um, tested in the Marshall Islands and, and other Pacific Islands, but they started in Nevada. Um, and you might all, all know this, and you might all go to um, the, the Oppenheimer movie reel soon where we can um, see tests in Nevada, I, I, would, um, I would imagine at least. And um, they picked a site one kilometers um, north of, of Las Vegas um, within the US core territory, um, which was described as virtually uninhabited. Um, yet um, the region downwind was of course inhabited by um, Native Americans, um, but also Mormons um, who had little agency um, at the time, and um, you know, really, when when they talk about um, the the people that were living downwind, they they knew um, about downwind um, and and the radioactive fallout that would um, result uh, after the weapon test. They considered um, this population these populations low use. That's that's a quotation um, from from them. So. Um, in Nevada, they only tested um, as it was still in the U.S. core territory, um, 
relatively low yield nuclear weapons. Um, they're not really low yield nuclear weapons because they're nuclear weapons. Um, it's it's um, really hard to to say that, and you know, in the end, they're no small nuclear weapons. Um, but relative to to the um, to the nuclear weapons tested um, in in the Marshall Islands and the other Pacific Islands, these were hydrogen bombs. Um, they're much bigger, um, and uh, you know. We all know from from the Bikini Atoll, um, of the Bikini Atoll, uh, populations were were relocated um, from from the island, um, sold as a voluntary temporary relocation. Um, in the end, it it um, was a lot of pressure um, as well, and um, yeah, so that was the the US um, Bikini Islands, especially and and Nevada. Um, if we look at the uh, USSR. Um, we can see that Kazakhstan was was a main region um, where where test where nuclear were tested um, in the in the site um, called the Polygon, um, which was deemed uninhabited, um, ignoring twenty thousand um, mostly Kazakh people um, in in close proximity to the to the test and one hundred thousand in the nearby city of of Simpalatinsk. And during the first tests, the Kazakh villages. Uh, we're not even informed. 2013, the Kazakh government um, spoke about 1.2 million people who were exposed to radiation um, in, in various um, dosage ranges. Um, and some of the, the region, some of the soil is still contaminated, although people are living there and growing their livestock. The second place where um, the USSR tested where was was um, called Novaya Zemlya, and um, I'm sorry for botching um, this uh, this name. Um, it's an Arctic island um, inhabit inhabited back in the day um, by the indigenous population of uh, Nenet. Um, they were forcibly resettled. Um, that's also the this this island in the in the, in the Arctic, um, where this this largest nuclear weapon that um, was ever tested, Tsar Bomba, some might know that, um, was tested. Um, the UK also tested their nuclear weapons. Um, they tested in Australia, and the Pacific Island um, colonies. Eight weapons were tested in South Australia, um, of course, where Aboriginal tribes lived um, in the Pacific Island colonies. They took kind of US as a role model. Um, they they tested documents um, in the Christmas Islands, um, and um, one one government document um, stated that only very slight health hazards would uh, to people would arise, and that only to primitive peoples. That's that's what the government document. Um, set. So we can we can see um, how uh, you know people were perceived um, by by governments back in back in the day um, when nuclear weapons were tested. Um, France also um, considered testing in the Alps actually, um, then realized well this might um, impact French groundwater. Um, moved to Algeria, began testing um, in 1960. Um, the Tuareg population of of Algeria wasn't warned. Um, and and many received significant exposure um, from from the Tuareg. Um, then they they moved to um, the French Pacific Islands um, right before or do, during the the independence wars in Algeria, I think. Um, and the the Gambia Islands um, were then picked um, 
And uh, this, you know, um, the French government hoped to, to trigger less opposition um, in France, uh, testing uh, Nicolotin's there, um, than than in um, than if they tested it in uh, Algeria. Um, but there was opposition um, in in Tahiti, um, particularly um, that that uh, France um, suppressed. Um, China also tested nuclear weapons um, in Xinjiang, uh, a region that's. Um, mainly um, inhabited by by the uh, Uyghur population, um, and recent studies have calculated that um, testing at this this uh, site at Lop Nur um, may have resulted in hundreds of thousands of deaths and 1.2 million people um, receiving dose, dosages high enough to um, cause leukemia or other cancers. Um, so all in all. Barbara Rose Johnston um, said, um, I brought a quote with me, um, that typically um, they are the marginalized and powerless groups in society, indigenous people and other social or political minorities. What they possessed was open space that could be contaminated without political recourse. So that, um, you know, Barbara Rose Johnston says, um, was really the motivation behind um, testing in, in certain places. Um, uranium mining, very similar picture. I don't, I won't go in there um, as deta detailed as, as um, in, in testing, but uranium mining also often happened and happens in former colonies. Um, there's a very good book about uranium mining um, in, in Africa and the circumstances by, by Gabriele Hecht. Um, and uh, also, if we look at the NPT deal, um, we we have this idea, right? I spoke about about non-proliferation and about disarmament, and that they hang together. And that that the the issue is that um, in this NPT deal, um, the non-nuclear weapon states basically said, you know, we're vowing to not um, acquire nuclear weapons um, if you also vow to disarm. Um, and uh, while the non-proliferation deal um, from the non-equipment states has been largely fulfilled, um, there's this North Korea that that acquired equipments within the NPT. Um, there are uh, three other states um, outside of the NPT um, that have acquired equipments: um, India, Pakistan, and and Israel. Um, but you know, all in all, um, the non-proliferation um, side was was large, uh, largely successful. Um, the disarmament side wasn't really because um, we we you know um, have um, around fifteen thousand nuclear weapons still. Um, we we had a huge reduction of nuclear weapons um, since since the eighties, um, especially and um, the the arsenals um, were for a long time reducing significantly. Um, right now, though, we have a lot of modernization programs um, and and we have. Um, states, some states, um, I think most of the equipment states, um, even increasing their arsenals. Um, China is increasing significantly. I think Russia is a bit, um, UK is increasing. Um, so we have, you know, um, again, a movement in the in the wrong direction um, if you support nuclear disarmament. So that's, you know, um, the unequal deal um, that also, if you look at the um, at the states involved in the NPT and which states are nuclear weapon states, which states um, are non-nuclear weapon states. Um, also, you know, some some global inequalities play a role there. Um, 
just quickly going through through the gendered um, lens, um, we we have you know and had for a long time um, very gendered language when it comes to nuclear weapons. Um, the first nuclear weapons that were used um, to to attack Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki were called um, "little boy" and and "fat man." We have had a a French designer um, deciding to to um, wanting to have a um, bath suit or or you know a new a new um, beachwear, um, which um, I think he he wanted to um, for that to have a real huge impact, uh, something like that he said, um, and and for that to have a huge impact, um, just just weeks after the tests um, there he named it bikini. Um, right, that's where the name bikini comes from. Um, but we also have gender inequalities and and patriarchal um, structures in in general. We have women's participation that's really low. Um, if you look at um, you know the UN level, but also other levels, um, we have impacts of radiation. Um, where um, biologically women have a higher possibility to develop solid cancer induced through radiation. Um, but probably more importantly, we have for, also have um, societal impacts that are gendered, right? Um, in in um, the case of a nuclear war, probably we have um, impacts of displacement that, that we know from, from research um, is usually gendered. Um, and, and um, you know, who, who are most impacted by this displacement isn't random. Um, we have uh, psychological impacts and, you know, not all of these um, uh, gendered societal impacts um, affect women more. If, if we look at, at, at psychological impacts, for instance, um, we have suicides and suicide rates and stress-induced suicides um, also gendered, not, not the way... Um, not the way um, the displacement is, but but probably the other way. Um, we have a stigmata, um, social stigmata. If we look at at um, the Japanese um, hibakusha, the survivors of of the nuclear text, for instance, um, particularly your young women, particularly prospective mothers, um, were were seen as contaminated and and um, you know handled really cautiously within society. Um, and we also have different diets. If, if we look at, um, you know, um, gendered societal um, or gendered societies, um, men and women or, or um, you know, um, men and women eat differently in very uh, many societies um, and uh, different um, foods have different radiations in them um, after a nuclear war. So, you know, certain fishes, certain crops um, are particularly vulnerable to to have a lot of radiation in them. So that also can can go, go both ways, but has an impact. Um, patriarchal structures, we we have we've talked about that a bit. Um, so the idea of, of nuclear weapons and um, nuclear weapons governance um, being built upon patriarchal ideas of power, militarism, um, weapons, interstate conflict, rather than um, individualist and, and humanitarian ideas of, of cooperation. And that's um, both the level of the conversation. So um, conversing about, about the state, um, talking about the state rather than the individual um, and the framing of the conversation, talking about um, military um, power. So, you know, if you want to break that down, um, very often armament and, and militarism are associated with um, strength and, and manliness, and disarmament is, is associated with, with weaknesses and um, femininity. 
Um, there's a really good article by Carol Cohn, um, Sex and Death in the Rational World of Defense Intellectuals, that, that shows that um, impressively, if you want to read into that. Um, you know, um, I think I'm gonna gonna stop here. And not talk about how how activism a lot of the times is also suppressed. Probably can talk about that later. Um, but yeah, that's that's uh, how Nicolopens, um in many many ways are connected to to patriarchal structures, to gendered um, to gendered international relations um, realm, and also um, to colonial uh, notions and colonial structures within IR. Yeah, thank you so much for um for outlining that for us because I think that so many people just simply don't know how deep nuclear weapons are uh in terms of their intersectionality. Um that's why Youth Fusion we really put so much effort into having these conversations with people like you to really, you know, paint the picture because I think so many people just think that oh yeah, it's a weapon, it explodes, uh it's bad. But it really, you know, nuclear weapons really just infiltrate so many different parts of our society, politics, environment, everything. Um, so I think it's it's more important than ever to really make these connections now and say nuclear weapons impact you. If one goes off in, in Ukraine, I mean, it's it's not just, you know, the the environment or the people that will get impacted, but these impacts, you know, really have so many other dimensions to them. So thank you so much for really eloquently um, painting that uh, picture for us, but also uh, mentioning Carol Conn. I think, uh, again, everyone should read her. Um, so thank you very much again. And we'll sort of segue a little bit more into the feminist foreign policy area again, uh, where you've recently written a paper titled Toward a Feminist Nuclear Weapons Policy, uh, where you talk about uh, feminist foreign policy uh, a bit more as well. Uh, so could you please explain how uh, feminist foreign policy can be useful when it comes to nuclear disarmament? Uh, and you've sort of already explained a little bit, but maybe just, you know, give us a, a succinct answer. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to be a bit briefer here. Um, I, I promise actually to be a bit briefer. Um, so the idea really is that feminist foreign policy can be kind of compass, right? If you navigate... Uh, questions um, in the international realm and in, in foreign policy, it can be a compass. And if you you know do it intersectional, um, a feminist approach to foreign policy can give a lot of um, answers. Also, when it comes to nuclear weapons, um, it can address uh, or it can it can push us toward human security. Um, we we've heard about um ideas of of security often being state focused often being um thought from um you know the 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 state first but um human security basically says well um let's turn this around and think think security um from the bottom up think security from the individuals um what do we have to do um for for individuals to be secure and that's human security so i think an FFP points us toward um, human security and thinking security bottom up. Um, it can also push us toward really addressing nuclear colonialism, right? Because um, um, I outlined um, what the nuclear tests did, um, and a lot of that has been unanswered, right? And a lot of a lot of the test um, communities that were affected by the tests are still affected by the tests. Um, but there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and, and assistance um, of affected communities and support for affected communities um, necessary. 
Um, and I think, you know, FFP can push us toward addressing that as well. Um, and, you know, lastly, FFP can also um, push us to question uh, nuclear deterrence and, and the idea probably, you know, hanging together with, with um, human security a bit, um, question the, the idea of, of nuclear deterrence. Do we really need um, to deter another state um, with, with mass murder to be secure or, or are there other ways? Um, that that um, helps us to to stay secure. Um, they're probably non-nuclear. Um, and then again, also, um, you know, hanging together with with that because I think uh, deterrence and sound are are interconnected uh, very deeply. Um, pushes us to su support uh, nuclear disarmament um, that's mandated um, under the NPT, but as we've seen, um, has has some problems being set into practice. Um, one example, of course, would be um, Germany. Again, I'm, I'm from Germany, um, and uh, Germany has a feminist front policy uh, declared um, from the former ministry, um, but hosts nuclear weapons on, on its territory um, and in nuclear sharing agreements. Um, and I think that it doesn't really fit together um, if you if you have a feminist approach to, to um, nuclear weapons, um, if you have a feminist approach to foreign, foreign policy, um, and then have nuclear weapons on, on your territory with, with all the um gendered problems that they that they bring along i think that doesn't fit together and you know um ending nuclear sharing for instance through a feminist strong policy could be a powerful symbol um toward disarmament and and could work as a symbol um that could really push disarmament further um so that's probably um the the ideas i would have that feminist strong policy can 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 help and be compass in in nuclear weapons issues yeah, thank you so much. And I really like when I was reading that paper, I think the essence really was just screaming, nuclear weapons are not feminist. <laughs> and it was really so on point. Um, and I think that that's really the message that it's true. They they really don't, you know, nuclear weapons and any sort of feminist agenda just are not compatible. Um, and I think that, you know, with your work as well, it's so important to um to push that message through and hopefully it translates into policy because really, like it, it, they are not compatible in in any sort of uh, sense, um, not ethically uh, or you know ideologically or anything like that. So, um, that's a, I really enjoyed reading that paper and is actually really what inspired me to reach out to you and uh, and have this uh, and have this chat. Um, so thank you once again. And uh, you've also just mentioned now Germany uh, and their uh, feminist foreign policy, and you know we saw um with the the last election in Sweden that uh, they scrapped feminist foreign policy from their agenda and literally the first day that the new government went into um, office uh, the whole feminist foreign policy page on their um, government site just got taken down erased uh, they wasted no time um, so you know I was just I've been thinking is is Germany uh, sort of taking its place do you think is Germany going to be the new FFP forerunner I I don't know. I don't I don't think um that it needs an FFP forerunner. Um I, I think the beauty about FFP um could be, might be, um, ought to be, should be, um a cooperative approach and that the countries um are cooperating. And I don't, you know, um especially if if you um want to do an FFP intersectionally, I'm not quite sure um how good of an idea it is to to um let gen that Germany as the sole um state be um the, the front runner. Um I I rather like to to you know states 
um, that um, want to have this approach um, to to work together and and really see themselves um, as as policy equals and inspire um, each other. I think Germany also can learn a lot of uh, things from other feminist strong policies. Um, but uh, yeah, where where is some feminist strong policy going in general? Probably as well. Um, you know, we we have you've talked about if you talked about Sweden, um, and in general we can we in general we can we can see that. There are anti anti feminist movements, right? Um, feminism has has increasingly become uh, a bad word um, in in some circles, and um, you know we we've seen um, in the US very trans exclusive um, movements as well, which I think are very much connected um, to to anti feminist movements, and um, you know that's happening on on the one hand. Um, on the other hand, um, the, the number of countries that uh, want to have feminist foreign policy declare a feminist foreign policy um, is also increasing, right? And the feminist foreign policies are, are getting more elaborate. Um, countries are, are releasing guidelines. Um, you know, Germany is a new country that that has a feminist foreign policy now. Um, Chile has has launched guidelines recently. Um, I think in the UK. Um, three or four parties also have feminist foreign policy in the manifestos um so you know it's it's there it's a concept that that states um have have to deal with and um it's it's important to remind ourselves this 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 is less than 10 years old um as a state concept um the the um you know feminists talking about foreign policy um is way older um that that is also something we have to recognize um that this comes from from long history of activism and academic engagement um but the the policy concept itself uh being applied to states is less than 10 years old um from 2014 sweden so i think it's come a relatively long way um for policy concept in in less than 10 years um if if i can have a wish list um it's not christmas yet but uh, but i but i want to have one uh, anyway um i'd i wish for it to become more intersectional in the future um question structures question patriarchal structures uh, a bit more um not just focus on on um uh, women's participation in processes, which of course is important, but but is not everything. Um, I think there are there are questions that FFP can can answer beyond that. Um, and yeah, if if I could wish um, for something in the future um, where feminist foreign policy could be headed, I'd say there. But but I'm very cautious in in um, you know I don't have a, a, a glass a ball um, to to look into um, where it's going, right? Where it's heading? I don't know. Um, but that's that's what I would like it to be headed, and let's see um, if if we can do that. Definitely, and I think I couldn't agree with you more with it being a cooperative thing globally. Um, you know, my main sort of issues with feminist foreign policy is I sort of it's sort of the same with the nuclear disarmament space and the non-proliferation space, where it's very much still a global north project. It's still the power and the decision making is still very much centered in the global uh, north, and there's also I can't help but think the sort of um, with feminist foreign policy, a white savory kind of complex uh, that it has at the moment that is, I think, slowly, you know, these critiques are coming up now um, and that's sort of changing. Uh, but if I also had to add to a wish list for a, for an eventual Christmas, the feminist foreign policy Christmas, um, I would really love to see a lot more power and agency in the hands of the global South countries who want to engage with it, right? Um, like Chile, for example, that's, I think, sounds like a really great example. 
Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot. That's why I also said there's a lot of things to iron out with FFP. It's a great uh, framework with a lot of potential, but still, as you said, very young, um, and lots of uh, you know, turns to um to take. So thank you so much for that input as well. Um, and another question along these lines as well is that you know, for our listeners, many of them might not know that feminist grassroots activists, uh, actually played a very large part in um forming the nuclear disarmament uh, movement. Maybe you have some sort of, uh, you know, you could tell us a little bit more about this because I think your research is also quite uh, rooted in this as we've heard. Yeah, that's, that's true. And I think that's that's something that's underestimated for for a lot of people, uh, from, from by a lot of people. Um, and I think the, the history really starts uh, even before that, um, 19th century, 20th century, um, and and with with early feminist activists came um, campaigning for disarmament and, and not nuclear disarmament, but um, disarmament uh, um, of conventional weapons before nuclear weapons um, were were even invented. Starts with um, people like Berta von Suttner and and um, women's at the Hague, um, and um, this this all stems from from the women's women's suffrage movements and. Um, they they then formed the Women's International Congress, which which then you know led to this conference of women at at the Hague, um, at at a peace conference, um, and and also the Women's International League for for peace and freedom, um, which is um, now uh, one hundred and eighteen something um, years years old. So it's you know um, a really um, organization that has been around for for a very long time. Um, and you know, keeping this in mind, keeping in mind that feminist activists um, have been engaged with with peace and nuclear and disarmament um, before nuclear weapons were were um, were found, we can um, see very easily um, how feminists were also instrumental once nuclear weapons were there um, to to campaign for um, nuclear disarmament, and and they were instrumental in in many of the of the core nuclear disarmament movements. So if you look at the women's strike for peace. Um, in the US um, in, in 1961, if you look at um, Greenham Commons woman, uh, Women's Camp um, 1981 in, in the UK, um, where um, were being um, or where were, um, ought to be placed um, at the RF station um, in, in Greenham Common, Berkshire, um, UK. Um, when you look at the 1982 Central Park um, protest with over one million people, uh, where feminism was at the center, um, we we have um, posters from this protest: "A feminist world is a nuclear-free zone." So feminism was was an instrumental part of that, and we we have a lot of activism also beyond. Um, UK and the US, I only spoke about UK and the US now, um, but um, also, you know, um, in um, communities affected by tests, for instance, right, there's a lot of activism as well, um, Marshall Island feminist activists are, are very strong and loud, um, feminist activism from all over the world um, was, sort of had a huge impact um, on the um, nuclear ban treaty, the treaty on the prohibition of of nuclear weapons um it's interesting how um you know for the first time in in the nuclear realm a treaty was influenced by activism very very largely and was influenced um by by feminist act activism um very very largely again um there's a book by by ray atchison um we we mentioned ray um in the podcast 
um, on on this um, and how how this history went. So yeah, feminist activism has always been there in in um, terms of disarmament, and I suspect it won't go away. Thank you so much. And uh, also, I think uh, Ray's book, uh, I think it was smash, uh, Banning the Bomb, Smashing the Patriarchy. I also read it last year. And also, you know, such a fascinating history that, as you said, extremely, um, uh, you know, sort of under um, underestimated there. And, I, you know, every time I do a talk on a gender, peace and security panel, I'm always like one of the first things that comes out of my mouth. Nuclear disarmament has feminist roots. <laughs> so it's, you know, I've also been questioned quite a lot, like, why must we always talk about gender and feminism? Why must all why do we have to be so woke? And I'm just like, you know, this is really a central part of this whole movement, you know. So it's always good to have a reminder in there. So thank you very much uh, for humbly reminding us of those of those very um important roots there. Um, and now we're nearing the end, but we have two more questions. Uh, so we're all well aware at this point that you're doing your PhD and you are quite uh, firmly in academia at the moment. So I know a few of our listeners, you know, are either in their PhD or are maybe contemplating a PhD um, in this field or in general. Would you recommend it? So the great thing about the the field of of nuclear weapons and nuclear disarmament people is that it's very small and very supportive. Um, people know each other. People um, usually help each other, um, and everyone helps um, each other when they can. I think that's that's one of the huge advantages of of nuclear weapons fields and and of people um, engaging with nuclear weapons because you know um, I think because of of um, the international developments um, since the nineties has become, became really really small. Um, so I think it's it's always good to to go in the field and to to talk about nuclear weapons and to go in there. Um, but of course, you know, um, it's it's a field that doesn't have a lot of funding, um, doesn't have a lot of jobs. Um, and the gamic field also is is tough. There's not a lot of money, not a lot of jobs. Um, and in academia, there's usually a lot of lot of work to do. So um, I I really like it because um, it gives me the opportunity to research on things that I really care about and that I um, want to research on. Um, and you know, research is is extremely interesting um, and contributing hopefully um to uh, the knowledge production um in academia um is something i i aspire to do um but again you know it's it's tough as well um funding and and structures aren't really really good um and the work is is uh, just a lot um but um right now i think um my um assessment underlying would be that it's worth it for me but of course that's um for for each individual to decide thank you so much i think those are some wise words uh, but i also you know i think as you said, it is such a supportive community and there's so many good things, but I think we all need to at some point get together and plot some scheme to get a lot of funding at some point because there's so much to be done. Um, so thank you so much uh, for that input. It's, I think it'll be really valuable to our listeners uh, and to myself as well. And uh, the last question uh, is really very much about uh, some more uh, advice from your uh, plethora of knowledge and wisdom where I'd really love you to leave with some, you know, words of wisdom and advice for our youthful uh, listeners uh, and really maybe, you know, especially for the academic ones and the ones in the nuclear disarmament field, what, what advice would you give them? 
I'm not quite sure if I'm, I'm the right person for, for wisdom, um, but what I can try is give you a life hack that has helped me in the past a lot. Um, so I think it's it's always good to to ask senior people for coffee um, and for chat and for recommendations and for you know just just talking to you because um, usually everyone is, is supportive. Usually everyone um, remembers their their own uh, past and um, as as um, biology will everyone was young once. Um, so you know usually people remember that and usually people um, are very helpful and are um, very willing to to have a chat and have a coffee and give some recommendations on whatever you do um, and um, yeah usually I think that that these were the um, most helpful conversations and, and recommendations that I had um, in the past and just reaching out to people is I think always a good idea. For sure I think that's also where I've gotten my most support is when I've sort of you know reached out for a for a hand and ask for some advice and I think most people in this field are very willing uh, to give it to you I know that here at, at Youth Fusion we're very we've been very supportive to a lot of youths and uh, I think all of us especially the you're also a part of the youth for TPNW right and I think that that space is also just absolutely supportive and fantastic so there's a lot of a lot of great spaces and a lot of great people that you can um, sort of tap into um, so now we've sort of come to the end and I just really want to give you a big thank you again, Yanis. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I think that this conversation that we've had today and, and you know, what, what everything that you've said has just been so valuable and just really, really, you know, you dug into it in such a great way. You have such great perspectives. Your research is so interesting and so important. Um, and again, you know, really bridging these gaps between the nuclear disarmament and and like feminist foreign policy spaces to me is just really like of the utmost importance on my agenda. So thank you so much for doing all the hard work. Um, and do you have any sort of finishing words that you'd like to leave us with? No, just uh, thanks for having me and thanks for for coming this podcast. Um, and I, you know, of course, find my um, the topics that I work on on important, um, but there's also a lot of other important people and other um, very interesting people working working on these on these topics. Um, so yeah, do do read further. Um, and I hope uh, you enjoyed um, this episode. So thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks again, and hopefully we'll have you back. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much to Yanis for taking the time and joining us on our podcast today. And thank you all for listening. You can find out more about Youth Fusion's work on our website, www.youthfusion.org or at Youth Fusion on most of our social media platforms. For a closer look at some of the projects mentioned in this episode, you can also find this interview in an article format on our website. This was the sixth episode in the series and you can find more inspiring interviews in this series and other ones on Spotify or the links provided on the Youth Fusion website under our podcast tab. Youth Fusion is a worldwide networking platform for young individuals and organizations in the field of nuclear disarmament, risk reduction and non-proliferation. We focus on youth action and intergenerational dialogue, building on the links between disarmament, peace, climate action, sustainable development and building back better from the pandemic. Our goals are clear, to inform, educate, connect and engage our fellow students, activists and enthusiasts. 
Through these activities and as part of the Abolition 2000 Network, we are contributing to the total abolition of nuclear weapons. Thank you so much again for listening and goodbye, stay safe.